Hi there. This is David J. Moore. Thank you for joining me for this audio commentary experience. I wrote a book called World Gone Wild, A Survivor's Guide to Post-Apocalyptic Movies. It came out in 2014. And I've got another edition coming out in 2022. Um, it's important that I mention that right away because... Uh, in that book, I cover, uh, I review uh, close to 1,500 films from around the world that deal with uh, the end of the world. Um, all spectrums of it, um, every subgenre you can imagine. And uh, I also do a lot of interviews, and I, it's a huge, like, encyclopedia type of book. Um, and I cover films like Testament and, you know, everything you can imagine from the uh, Mad Max ripoffs to, um, you know, Independence Day, you know, alien invasion films and, uh, you know, anything that, that deals with the utter destruction of, of Earth, um, even post-Earth, uh, stuff that takes place on another planet after the world has been destroyed. Um, Testament falls into a very specific subgenre category that I uh, detail um, in the back of my book. Uh, I, I really break down every single subgenre you can imagine uh, that deals with uh, the end of the world. And Testament falls into what I would call the domestic apocalypse subgenre category. And what that is, is a uh it's, it's it deals with the story or you know a set of characters uh you you're introduced to these characters just like we're being introduced to these characters right now in testament um yeah, it's just a normal day uh normal life family life it could be just one person could be a family could be you know uh a set of kittens for all you know you know uh but the the apocalypse hasn't happened yet and at some point in the running time of the film, uh, something completely devastating happens, uh, whether it's a nuclear uh, holocaust or an alien invasion like in War of the Worlds um, or Independence Day. You know, if you just remember an in Independence Day, just for example, you know, uh, Will Smith and his family are just going about their day. And, uh, you know, the president is going about his daily business and then, you know, 10, 15 minutes into the movie, all of a sudden aliens have landed and, and there's complete and utter chaos and destruction. Um, the domestic apocalypse is a very uh, interesting uh, subgenre. And it's also likely, I would say, just in a generalization, I would say it's it tends to be more devastating um, for a lot of reasons um, because we're meant to identify with these characters. Um, you know, this is Jane Alexander here playing just a, a house mom, you know, a housewife <clears throat> and her husband, William Devane, you know, he's just going about his daily exercise routine in the morning. You know, she's combing her hair. This is just us. You know, this is, this is, uh, this is normal. This is, this is life. And, um, I, I wanted to mention some specific, uh, domestic apocalypse films that I would compare Testament to so that you have... Um, a little bit of um, reference point, you know, if you want to delve a little deeper into this uh, subgenre. It's an important subgenre, and the films I'm about to mention 
are very, very important, um, not just to the domestic, quote, apocalypse subgenre, but to the entire post-apocalyptic genre itself and to cinema itself. Um, one film that's uh, quite similar to this is a British film called Memoirs of a Survivor with Julie Christie. It's a British film. Um, similar character. Uh, she plays uh, just a, a, a woman at home and the apocalypse happens and she starts to have these uh, you're not quite sure if they're illusions uh, fantasies uh, delusions or if it's actually happening um, but it's it's a devastating film about a, the nuclear uh, apocalypse um, a film that came out uh, the same year as testament is very well known it was uh, an american miniseries a two-part series called the day after uh, with Jason Robards and Steve Gutenberg. Uh, that's a that's a pretty common film. You can find that anywhere. Uh, it's very devastating. Uh, we're it, it it's it's like a three hour plus film. Um, seen it in its entirety, and it's very similar to this film, Testament. Testament tells the story um, in like a ninety minute time uh, time frame. It's pretty quick. It's mercifully short because it's so, so devastating, as you'll see, um, as we get a little further on. You know, everybody you're seeing on screen here is, you know, spoiler alert, I'm sure you've seen this film already before you're listening to the commentary, but pretty much everybody you see on screen is going to be deceased by the end of the film. Um, and, and in a very slow and agonizing way. Uh, so, okay, um, Threads is another one from 1984. Threads has uh, garnered a reputation for being one of the most devastating films ever made. Uh, not to mention one of the most indelible post-apocalyptic nuclear holocaust films uh, of all time. Um, I highly recommend it, but it's not something that um, I, I've, personally I, I don't ever really want to watch it again. Um, it's it just it shows in great vivid detail the degradation of the human body and the human mind and spirit over the course of its time as uh, people just suffer with radiation poisoning and uh, marauders and everything you can imagine starvation uh, there's another film that's an animated movie from the mid 80s called where the wind uh, when the wind blows it's a British film kind of similar to this what we're what we're seeing here it's about an elderly uh, british couple in the countryside and they really have no idea what they're dealing with when the uh, holocaust nuclear holocaust happens and they're just kind of winging it um in their own uh whimsical british way you know it's like oh darling what are we doing here you know what, what are we going to eat today you know and they're slowly starving and and uh withering away from radiation poisoning uh, it's on the surface. It seems very uh, sweet and cute, but it's really, really devastating. Uh, a film that I really wanted to mention uh, that most people probably will never get a chance to see in their lifetime uh, is a TV film uh, from 1960 called *Alas Babylon*. Uh, it's based on a novel by Pat Frank. Um, this movie came out. Um, it was produced for television. It aired on CBS television for Playhouse 90, the year after On the Beach, 
the famous uh, apocalyptic film On the Beach came out with Fred Astaire. Uh, that's a great movie, by the way, On the Beach. This is Mako on screen, by the way. I wanted to mention him. Uh, he's always one of my favorite actors. I love Mako. Um, the gas station attendant, Mike, and his son, Hiroshi. Um, this character is very important. He comes into play later, as does Hiroshi. Uh, Mako, you might recognize him as a voice actor or an actor um, from one of my personal favorite movies, Conan the Barbarian. Uh, so many movies, so many great films. Uh, one of his last roles was as a voice actor in uh, Avatar, The Last Airbender. Okay, so back to uh, Alas Babylon. This film only aired one time on CBS television. Um, over 24 million people tuned in to watch it. Um, the only way to watch this film is to go to the UCLA Film Archives, and I had to make an appeal and state my case why I wanted to watch this film. Um, it's an ex extremely important apocalyptic movie, domestic apocalypse film. Um, when you watch the movie, when I finally got my appointment to watch the film, um, they sat me down in this private room, and it had the, it, the commercials were still intact. Uh, Allstate Insurance, Gas Company, Camel Cigarettes. It was really weird. It was very unusual watching this film. Um, it's very similar to Testament. Uh, it takes place in a small town in Florida. Um, the nuclear holocaust happens. 92% of the world's population are wiped out within the first hour. And um, uh, in, in that moment when the blast happens, this little girl, um, she's blinded because she looks at the, the nuclear blast. Um, and it takes place over like a four-month period. And the town is starting to become overwhelmed by starvation and radiation. And, you know, the, the local doctor, the only doctor in town, he's murdered by these, um, these pill-addicted drug addicts who uh, try to, um, you know, pill for his little pharmacy. And so the town doesn't even have its doctor. It's a really, really shocking and grim little film um, that aired only once on television. And uh, it's really a shame that for whatever reason, this film never made it to home video in any capacity, never aired again. Um, the last scene of the movie, the, the husband says to his wife, you know, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow may never come. And that's essentially what Testament is. Um, the, it's thematically all about that. We're meant to um, settle in with these characters and... Um, you know, we watch as, you know, tomorrow may never come. And uh, the, the wife, played by Jane Alexander, um, she ruminates uh, via voiceover narration about how, you know, the future is, you know, not certain at all, especially as she uh, beholds her children dying one at a time. It's, it's really sad. Um, the apocalypse still hasn't happened yet, and we're, you know, 12, 13 minutes into the movie. And... I, I really wonder, um, at this point in the film, when the, the film was released in, in some theaters, if, you know, there's always going to be a straggler buying a ticket. You know, it happens every time I go to the movies, there's people standing in line. What's next? You know, what's playing? They ask the the uh, the box office, you know, uh, clerk, you know, they have no idea what they're going to see that day. You know, if people had walked into this movie having no idea what this movie was about, at this point, they still don't know what, the, what it's about. Is it just a drama about this you know, wife and husband 
um, having marital problems. Um, who knows? You know, they, they don't know what they're about to get into. Um, this is a, an important thing that, that she says to him. Um, she says, this is the only time we have, Tom. Um, it's good old-fashioned foreshadowing right here. Yeah, people have no idea what they're about to get, get into. Even people that know in a log line or whatever, uh, they still don't know what they're about to behold when they're watching this movie for the first time. Um, this film is uh, based on a short story called The Last Testament by Carol Amen. Um, this story takes place within a 45-day period. I read the story. It's very, very short. It was published in a magazine. It's literally only a couple pages long. It's comprised of, I would say, mm, maybe 15 uh, diary entries, give or take, something like that. Each diary entry is very short, just a couple of paragraphs, and it's um, this character here relating what is happening. Um, even even she doesn't quite understand what is happening. There isn't anything in that journal. Well, I'm going to start right now. Um, so apparently when that short story was very first published, right away it affected a lot of uh, people and uh, producers tried to option it right away. Um, it's it's a it's a powerful little story. It's kind of slight. It, it's um, I, I personally I can't imagine how someone would see that as a film. It, it's it's such a short story, and um, each paragraph is just like a, a thought, observations of what's happening. Um, but this movie was produced for the American Playhouse. This is an American Playhouse production. It was meant for television. Um, it was deemed so powerful and so strong that it transcended the television option and it became a theatrical film, which prompted uh, SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, to sue. I'm not exactly sure what the results were there. I think it was settled out, out of court. Um, but uh, what we're watching here is a film that was originally intended for television. Um, because it was released in theaters, Jane Alexander received a well-deserved Oscar nomination for Best Actress. Um, I've never really put much stock in Academy Awards. I don't, that's just a personal thing. I don't care one way or the other. Um, but I think it's pretty cool that she was nominated for this. This little film that was never really intended to be in theaters. And she was recognized by her peers. Um for a nomination. Uh, she lost out to Shirley MacLaine for Terms of Endearment that year. This is this little scene that we're, we're getting here. Um, this comes into play later. This, this play, it's kind of important, the theme of the play. I'll talk about that a little bit later when they show the play in, in a little bit more detail. Um, that little kid right there, that's Lucas Haas, who plays um, Scotty. Uh, he went on to have a, a pretty great career. 
Shortly after this, he was in Witness, um, which I saw theatrically in 1985. I remember that very well. I've always liked Lucas Haas. He's a really cool actor. Um, I think he was only eight years old, nine years old or something. That's Roxana Zal. Uh, I wanted to talk about James Horner, the composer of the uh, this film's score. Let's begin. All the rats, go over here. Horner was one of the greatest, uh, most prolific film composers we ever had and will ever have. Sadly, he uh, passed away in a, in a plane crash, which is just confounding. Uh, this year, uh, Horner had eight scores. He did eight scores in 1983. One of them was for Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is one of the darker films um, to come out of the Disney, the Walt Disney Company in the 80s. They, they experimented with some darker films in the 80s, like Watcher in the Woods. Um, but uh, Horner's score for Something Wicked This Way Comes is pretty great. Uh, another one he did was Kroll, which is a great fantasy uh, score that he did. It's one of the greatest fantasy scores of all time. It's not one of the greatest fantasy films of all time. It's a cool movie, but uh, what a great score. Uh, he also did Brainstorm that year and Gorky Park and Uncommon Valor, among other, other scores. So this scene right here that we're looking at is precisely where the short story begins. Right when the TV peters out and there's a, an emergency broadcast, that's exactly where the, this is precisely the moment where the short story begins. Um, she remarks that there, you know, something is on television. It's the very first, um, line in the short story you know, the, the news said blah 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 that there was a an event you know it's like she woke up in the middle of the night and, and all of a sudden this is happening like there the, this is this is the beginning oh yeah so i i believe this um this film had a half a million dollar budget initially and it was raised to three quarters of a million at one point. Yeah, this is this is exactly right here where the short story begins. This is San Francisco. We have lost our New York signal. Radar sources confirm the explosion of nuclear devices there in New York and up and down the East Coast. I mean, this is this is the broadcast nobody on earth wants to see. We interrupt this program at the request of the White House. Um, the short story I, at first, when I was, um, I thought it was based on a book, uh, so I, you know, immediately like looked up, you know, a book by Carol Amen, The Last Testament, and there's no such book. It can be found in its entirety online. Uh, like I said, it's just a couple pages. Yep, there's the blast. And now we kind of know what kind of a film we're watching. We're, we're right 
here in the middle of it now. Um, we're not going to see William Devane again. That was the last of William Devane, that blast, pretty much. Um, according to uh, Lynn Littman, the director, uh, Devane was a little difficult to work with, but she really loved his performance in the film. And he's a memorable character. You know, he really makes an impression. You'll see here the very famous uh, Oscar-winning director, Kevin Costner. Um, and right next to him is the young wife character played by Rebecca De Mornay. This was the same year that she did uh, Risky Business. Uh, she has an interesting past. Uh, I've always found her upbringing fascinating. Her father was the um, very <laughs> controversial uh, public access talk show host Wally George who I used to watch on television when I was a kid. He'd put people on the hot seat. He was kind of, he predated uh, Jerry Springer, that kind of stuff. Uh, he always wore this really loud, uh, blonde, crazy wig. So yeah, that was her dad. I think, I, I don't really know all the details, but from what I understand, he disowned her. I don't know. That's just what I've picked up over the years. So we have the community here gathering to figure out what what to do. Um, so far, I can't raise. Kevin Costner being in this movie. This is one of his very first movies. This was even before uh, Fandango, which was kind of his first star starring roles. West Texas. You know, I would I would obviously I wouldn't call this a Kevin Costner movie, but it's very telling. And very fascinating that Costner would go on to make two of my very favorite post-apocalyptic films. I'm a huge fan of The Postman. I don't care what anybody says. I love that movie, and I love Waterworld. It's fascinating that Costner did an interview um, on the original Paramount DVD release about Testament. I, I thought that was... Amazing. I mean, this is just a tiny little role at the beginning of his career. And he was willing to do, you know, like a five to ten minute interview about um, Testament, which is amazing to me. So this movie clearly made an impression on him. Not just as an actor, but, you know, as, as a creator. You know, he would go on to do other apocalyptic films. And I think the theme... Of this movie really affected him somehow and um you know he'd go on to make very important films in the genre costner's a really interesting actor you know i i've always felt he's underrated he's kind of found his audience in his niche now on television um with yellowstone which i i haven't watched but um always thought he was underrated Hey, Mom. What are you doing? Keeping watch? If you have... See, the first time I saw this movie, I didn't have children. And it was devastating then when I watched it the first time. 
because it's just a human story. It's a very human story. How can you not identify with these characters and this this woman who's left to fend for herself and try to protect her kids? I mean, you can't really protect against this situation. Um, as I was writing World Gone Wild years and years ago, uh, you know, like 2010 or whenever it was that I was really writing the book, um, everything looks the same. It it really did affect me deeply, but watching it again uh, after I had children, it's a, it's a whole different thing. You know, this it, this movie has a very feminine perspective. This is not a masculine movie. You know, the, my version of the apocalypse, you know, writing a book about these films in depth and for so long and studying the genre, you know, I, being a man, you know, I, I constantly try to imagine myself um, in the situation that the characters are in, which is why I call it a survivor's guide to post-apocalyptic movies. It's kind of a... Um, I hesitate to say a wish fulfillment kind of a book, but like if the world were to end in XYZ fashion, how would you survive in that situation? And would this book help you? And, you know, I, I would, you know, use weapons. I would, you know, I try to imagine all the things that I, that I would do to survive. Um, hoard canned goods, um, yeah, every time I go to the grocery store, I always buy a few extra canned goods, another bag of rice. You never know. Um, and we're in this situation again. It's like we're in another Cold War. You know, this movie was shot at the height of the Cold War. Um, Soviet Union was still in power. And, um, you know, there was always, you know, the, the, the James Bond movies were still about nuclear weapons and... You know, the Russia was always the bad guy. And, you know, it's so strange how we're back here again. And it seems like we're under threat of nuclear annihilation again in 2022. So, frankly, you know, there is no um, glory to be found. There's no survivor's guide to post-apocalyptic movies. If we undertake, a, if we're in the middle of a nuclear holocaust, I mean, it's just, these movies are technically science fiction, but they're done in such a way that it's almost like you're watching a documentary. Um, Threads and, and uh, The Day After and, and Testament, you know, these movies treat, uh, they, they handle a humanity going through this unimaginable situation in such a vivid way. Um, this is perhaps the quietest film of the bunch that I mentioned. Um, it's, it's almost passively happening. You know, it was written by a woman. The story was written by a woman. It's directed by a woman. It's told from the point of view of a woman. And it gives the film a very um, down-to-earth, uh, non-violent air. Um, it's systematic. It's very, very systematic. It's emotional. It's never over the top. 
Um, people behave the if I, one thing I noticed watching this film again recently is watching the way people behave. People are so civil in this movie. It's amazing. We've come here today is to work together to make this community work. There's a lot of speaking and, and just reasoning with people. Um, I'm not sure. In fact, I, I would hesitate. Well, I don't think that if, if we ever arrived at a situation like this, I think it would be just chaos, pandemonium. I remember after president was I don't think people are really this civil when it comes down to panic and facing almost certain death. That's my observation. I mean, these people are so civil. I mean, even this, this guy here, played by Kevin Costner, the, you know, he's kind of the character that I probably identify the most with, but he's so nice. I don't think it's reasonable to expect we're going to get help. I mean, at this point, I'd be walking around with a, you know, <laughs> you know, with, with weapons. I mean, everybody is just so nice. It's amazing. Um, they, they have no idea what they're in for. And here's the doctor who's called upon to tell everyone what they're in for. And he's even, he, he like breaks it to him in such a nice way. Accurately measuring... He holds back a great deal. He knows what what's going to happen. Um, but he just kind of gives it to him gently. So humane. You know, It's it, this movie has such a, a humane approach. And she, the, the, the mother here, she's already experiencing trouble with uh, breastfeeding. I'm not really sure how it all works out with nuclear radiation and all that stuff. But this movie tries to explain it on a very layman's terms. Doctor? Frankly, it's probably mostly speculation. My baby wouldn't take my milk this morning. She threw it up. Um, and this movie takes place within like a month and a half. Like I said, the short story takes place within a, like a 45-day period. And so the movie does as well. Things happen pretty quickly in that time, time frame. You know, that other film I mentioned, Alas Babylon, took place within like four months. And by the end of the four months, that's, you know, things are still not as grim as they are um, like at the end of this movie, Testament. I don't know what the time frame was for... Um, the day after threads seemed like a much longer period of time people are beginning to mutate and you know this is the yeah here's the the giant line for gas i mean i was just looking at sri lanka what's going on in sri lanka right now it's complete and utter chaos right now because there is literally no more gas in sri lanka and this is just a little taste of, you know, a, a crisis. You know, we're in June of, or July 2022, and, you know, gas prices are extremely high already. And this guy, Mike, he's not selling gas to people who are just drive-by people. Um, he's only selling, or he's actually giving gas away to good customers. He's not charging anything. Because... He, he, even he knows there's really nowhere you can go. 
me to my regular customers. You know, these children, this that's the that's the heartbreaking thing about this movie is the children. They don't need much food and clothes. You know, they're innocent. They have no clue what's happening, what's going to happen. Gas is gone. We'll plant a garden. They don't deserve this, you know. And his his son Hiroshi, development developmentally disabled kid, he's great. I love this kid. How come the gun, Mike? But he's he's generous to this family because um you know, their kids play together. And the fa- this family has always been good to Mike's son, Hiroshi. So he gives gas away. You know, he's not he's not in for in for the money. I mean, there's, what are you going to do? You're going to spend money where? How? Yeah, the, this is it. This is the end. He knows it. It's in his eyes. He knows it. I just hope you get to have a use for it. But he's armed himself. He's pretty much the only character, I, is, if I can recall correctly, that, that arms himself. But I think anywhere else in the world, at any other time, if this were to happen, it would be way, way more intense. So that's one of the things, I mean, my wife gives me a lot of grief about it, but I every time I go to the grocery store, no matter when or how or what our budget is, I always buy extra cans, extra dry goods. You never know, especially this last couple of years after COVID when, you know, the, the shelves were bare. You know, we got a little taste of that in the United States. Um, and my, that was the first time in my lifetime where it kind of felt like we were on the on the verge of something. You know, these people lining up, again, very civil to receive whatever it is that they're receiving. Resources. So, yeah, that, that time during COVID gave us a little taste of what what could be. Well, so is he. More than four hours. This is our place. And this guy here. Again, he, he mentions, he you could tell this guy's annoyed but he's so civil he just kind of shakes his head i mean (laughs) there's no fights there's no brawls everyone is just so nice to each other and this this table with the batteries this is kind of important this character comes into play later you know all these kids give up their toys for batteries you know it's this guy this kid here on the right we know he's uh you know, he's, he's still, he's pilfers these couple of batteries, puts them in his pocket. Um, but he, this kid comes into play later. He's kind of an important sort of a character in this kind of movie. Um, he's a taste of things to come. You know, he's going to grow up. If, if, it, if this world were to end, this world that we're looking at here in Testament, and it is ending... This kid's going to survive, you know, and he's going to join a pack. And he's going to be part of a group of, of marauders, you know, at, at some point. Uh, this whole neighborhood was filmed in Sierra Madre, uh, which is a nice little suburb right near Pasadena and Glendale. It's a really pretty area. The Halloween John Carpenter Strode house is near here. In fact, that looks like the Strode House. <laughs> it's not, but same neighborhood-ish. Um, real, real pretty area. 
the Huntington Gardens are are kind of in there near San Marino. It's a really nice old uh, neighborhood. It's real pretty. It's never gone downhill. Right. West Texas heard it was the Chinese. South America heard it was some radical liberation organization. Glad to hear from you, November 6th, Hotel Lima. Catch you soon again, Harvey. Ah, <laughs> oh, hi, laddie. <laughs> Uh, this old codger here, he's the ham radio um, survivalist kind of character. You know, every town I'm sure has one. That's something that I think people should invest in as a ham radio. I've always thought about it. I haven't, I haven't done it yet. You got your bike? Yeah. You rode up the hill? It's important to have one and to have communication when all other lines and forms of communication are down. You could tell this guy was like in World War II. I mean, he's got all these uh, uh, maps and I don't know what all that stuff is. Call signs. I don't know. Earlier on, we saw some, uh, you know, the neighborhood is going downhill a little bit. It's going to go downhill more. People are abandoning their cars. Their automobiles are just left on the side of the road. You know, there's gasoline shortages in the in the area. We've got some voiceover narration here from Jane Alexander, straight out of the, the short story. She's trying to maintain some hope. And it's important for the audience to have some hope as well, even though it's, it's not really going to come to a whole lot of fruition, but we're, we're supposed to hope for these characters. I mean, you don't want to just see them give in. James Horner's score, his score reflects that hope. He's did a beautiful job with this very small film. Um, it's not a huge score. It's a very uh, touching and poignant score. It has moments of dread and um, very important moments of uplifting motifs. The score is available on CD from Movie Score. Uh, what is it? Screen Archives put the CD out some years ago. I don't know if it's still in print. It's only like a 35 minute score, it's pretty short. Oh, you two run on ahead. I mean, what are you going to do in in this situation? I mean, she takes her kids for a picnic. I mean, what, what are you going to do? I remember during COVID, all the parks were like taped up and shut down. It was, I felt so bad for, for kids, you know, like they couldn't even go outside and play. That tree is a very important moment. Um, her son planted that tree, her oldest son. And now it's just completely withered away from the radiation. It's a sign that things are, you know, going to get really bad soon. That moment is directly out of the short story. There's a whole um, journal entry just about that tree. Um, this is the school play. This is kind of an important moment from a thematic point of view. You might not realize what this play is if you're just watching the film. You don't know... It's just a bunch of kids, you know, 
reciting lines for you know the school play. It's interesting that the the whole town shows up for this. You know, this is kind of it. This is the last time all these kids will be together. It's the last time the community will probably be together as well. You know, they've made a collective decision to support, you know, all the, the future of, you know, humanity, really. And this play, the play that they're actually performing is The Pied Piper of Hamelin, which... Uh, is really about the future of humanity. It really is. Um, that it's a very old story. It was a, it originated as a metaphor for saving a community from the plague. Uh, the mythical character, uh, the Pied Piper, he led the plague-infested rats away from this town, and uh, the community reneged on their deal. They didn't pay him. And so the Pied Piper comes back and he steals all the children until the community pays what they owe. And then he returns the children. My son, he's gone. He's dead. What have we done? And that's has a lot to do with what we're, you know, watching here. Obviously, a massive, devastating plague is about to just wipe everybody out. So this, this play is kind of a... Uh, uh, foreshadowing again of what we're gonna gonna be seeing. Yeah, see these these it's very you know it's tough man. I never really looked into the Pied Piper. I, I remember there was a movie, I think, I want to say Peter Sellers had a small part in the film. It was an older movie. But I never really looked into it until uh, I was watching this movie recently. And it made sense to put that there, that, that specific play. This is a really awful, sad moment. Costner, this... This drawer here is a coffin for his baby who has just died. Um, this baby is kind of the first victim of this town. We had a tiny box, but it wasn't big enough. We didn't have a bureau the right size, so he gave this to me. See? And Costner does a really good job, you know? I mean, for being one of his very first films, first roles, he does a great job here. You know, it's it's a small part, but it's it's an important role. It's unthinkable what he's got to deal with this guy. We thought we were so lucky. <laughs> it didn't seem like there'd be any more bombs. And Susie had to get sick. Things are only going to get worse for everybody at, at this point. Um, you know, I've I visited Sierra, Sierra Madre many times. I, I've used to have a friend who lived out there. It's not as close-knit a community as this movie is um, making it out to be, but it's just meant to signify that this town is relatively small and 
it comes together during a crisis. I'm not sure how city folk, quote city folk, would see this movie. It's it it might even seem like a quaint proposition to suggest that people, you know, like how would she know that guy other other than the fact that she may have seen him at that community meeting and just by chance, you know, they they met each other again. It's you know, you just kind of got to go with it. is a neighbor kid here lucas haas's character he almost seems like he has like an asperger's or something it's never addressed in any way but like the first time we saw him he's nonverbal. he's an unusual kid he's different and roxana's all there she's very normal she's a no- totally normal teenager very identifiable. She was in a movie called Table for Five with John Voight. That's a really good movie. Uh, Kevin Costner has a small part in that movie as well. It's kind of coincidence. Don't come in. Don't come near me. Yeah, Zal here, she's like, I don't know, she's playing maybe... 13? I, I, it's kind of hard to, to tell. Maybe 14? I'm not sure. She's probably in 7th, 8th, ninth grade, something, something like that. I don't know. But she's a very normal teenager, and to be faced with things that she's being faced with at this age, you know, it's, it's very um, relatable. She's a very relatable character in every way. You know, she misses her dad. It's kind of an unspoken thing that her dad is not coming home, ever. Look at those E.T. stickers. That's cool. E-Man. Oh, yeah. That brings my childhood back. kind of hard to be proactive in a situation like this i mean what do you do you just tread water you walk back and forth you know this kid's counting the uh the cans again you know it's like what do you do i mean carol i think you better come with me this is the town reverend or minister or, you know priest or whatever he is This, in the background there, we see, you know, the first of many funerals that will be taking place in this town. I like how that's just kind of in the background. It's not in the foreground. It's, it's just kind of like, if you're paying attention, you can see it. And Scotty here, you know, he's burying his He-Man guys. 
because they don't, you know, they're running out of food and, you know, he's, he's a child. He doesn't have any idea of, you know, it's just, it's sad, you know, and he's doing it at the, at the cemetery. I'm not talking to them anymore. I'm running away. I hate fighting. To get in the few yourself, stubborn man. No more. Where will you go? I like that Hawes um, is willing to talk about this movie. He did an interview about this film as well, and it was one of his very, if not his very first film. He was in a great movie called The Lady in White by a director named Frank Laloja. That movie, if you haven't seen that, you got to see that movie. It's it's very much in the M. Night Shyamalan vein. It's very much that kind of movie. It's so good. It was made in 1987, I think. Great movie. I don't like it. He didn't fall into that child star rebellions, whatever, you know. He didn't go the Corey Haim, Corey Feldman route. He sustained a career... Seemed like he had his, you know, priorities straight. And uh, he's still still working. I just saw him in a Bruce Willis movie recently. One of these uh, little Bruce Willis films called Midnight in the Switchgrass. And, he, and Haas played a serial killer. He was pretty good in it. Where are you going? So this is interesting. This char- These characters here are leaving the young couple they're leaving town but they have no idea where they're going something in in i've noticed in apocalyptic films uh, you know it's a common thing when people leave town or even met in the mad max movies i mean in the last mad max film there there's this fabled place called you know the green place you know it's it's a common thread a common theme in in apocalyptic movies where Somebody will hear a radio broadcast that there's a town in, you know, uh, Alaska or somewhere where there's a safe zone. You know, the radiation hasn't reached here. Come to our town. Come to our whatever. But there's nothing like that in this movie. That couple, they have no idea where they're going. They're just driving away. Which, I don't know, I, I guess people would do that. Not really knowing where they're going to go. I mean, you're going to drive to the mountains, drive to the hills. I, I just, I don't know. For me, I've always been a stay put kind of guy. You're just driving away. You, I don't know. You're going to run out of gas at some point. You're going to walk. What What are you going to do? I, it just doesn't make any sense to just drive away. Not knowing where you're going to go. Well, Rosemary's been walking the neighborhood doing things, going from house to house, checking on people, seeing if there's anything to do. Right now, she's not feeling as good as she should. And uh, maybe for the next couple of... And this character, Brad, this kid, he's... He needs to keep busy, and this this old codger, you know, he tells him that the ham radio communications have completely died out, which is a signal of things to come, obviously. You know, there's just nothing, nothing now. But this, this guy here kind of instructs him on just to keep busy, keep his mind busy, rather than dwelling on dread. And this movie has a lot of dread. I mean, we can see it now. Look here. 
I mean, this town, the, the garbage services, you know, the waste management has stopped their runs. Trash is just piling up. Brad never rests. You know, it's looking like garbage now. It's just gar everywhere's garbage. There's no gas for the for the trash services. Hospital is still open. This is where we're informed that 1,300 people have died in this town at this point, which is an awful lot. So I would imagine that the blast, if this, I mean, this movie never says it was, it takes place in Sierra Madre. It's just, um, I mean, we know that William Devane's character, he's in, he was in San Francisco or that area, the Bay Area. So this is like California-ish. So if people are dying at this rate, at this time, at this time in the in you know the timeline, the blast must have been very close. Will be repaired. So I mean, thirteen hundred people in this small town. That's that's a lot. And this this the sheriff here, his whole workforce is is sick or dying or dead and he's sick there was a movie okay this is this is yeah so i wanted to mention a movie that came out just a couple of years ago called i think we're alone now it's a post-apocalyptic movie with peter dinklage and l fanning Came out just, you know, like, I don't know, I want to say three, four years ago, something like that. That was one of the very first movies, if not the first movie in the apocalyptic genre that I think it had to deal with a, a, a virus. And, like, everybody dies. It's like 1% of the population is left. And Dinklage is left in this, this small town. He's the only guy in town. He's, he's the only one left. And this movie, it was almost, um, it must have been the first time I've ever seen it. And I've seen literally more than a thousand of these films, 1,500 of them, where it shows in explicit detail how this guy deals with the cleanup of his town after, after everyone's dead. He goes out once a day and he cleans up one house. You know, there's dead people in the house that have been there for, you know, a year, two years, three years, however long it's been. And that's his, literally his occupation in life is to clean up the town one house at a time. And this movie, we just get a glimpse of the pileup of corpses. Um, you know, at one point we're going to see an explicit detail how they get rid of all these corpses that are just piling up. The, the cemeteries are full. And for that movie, I think we're alone now to explicitly detail what that looks like. I thought that was really great. Um, I mean, if you're the only person left in town, thousands of dead bodies everywhere, what are you going to do? Are you just going to go about your life or are you going to clean up your town? This scene is really important. Um, Roxana Zal, it's kind of the, uh, you know, sex talk or whatever, you know. It's, mom here is 
she knows that, this, that her daughter is not going to grow up and have kids of her own. So she's kind of, this is a very mother-daughter intimate moment. It's, it's the last one they'll ever have. But sometimes, most times. It's a very, uh, again, like I said, Roxana Zal, she's a very relatable character. She just kind of... Um, Everyone's always alone. Her emotions are flailing and she doesn't understand what's happening. But out of all the three kids, she is obviously the, the oldest and the most mature. And this is the most mature conversation that, that mom has in the movie with one of her kids. This scene here is probably my... This is this is the hardest scene for me to watch in this movie. This is the most heartbreaking scene in the entire film. Even the way it's shot. Everything about this, the lighting. You know, there's no electricity. Everything about this scene feels so real. And it's handled in just such a delicate, um, again, kind of a very feminine and motherly way. It's it's just so sad. Scotty's finally afflicted, you know. And just everything about this, every moment of this scene is just so tough. Very delicate, very, you know, it's important to film it. If you're going to film a scene like this, you got to be really careful and um, you got to know exactly where to place the camera, obviously, but the lighting is right. Haas is, you know, I, I don't even know how you would direct a kid like this. And it's important that um, it was directed by a woman. This specific scene is a very, um, it's beautiful, but man, is it, it's just heartbreaking. This is the scene that sticks with me the most. I have three boys. So, I mean, I've I've dealt with, you know, all three. Well, one of my children is, uh, he's just one years old. But, um, you know, we've dealt with high fevers and, you know, sore throats and coughs and everything. You know, hospital visits, emergency room, all that stuff. We've done it all. Um, so, I mean, this scene feels so, so, so real. And that's what I'm saying. And oh, see, this this is horrible. I mean, the, the towel has blood on it. <clears throat> we know where this is headed. Um, but yeah, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, once, if you have children, this movie will affect you much, much more than it, than it will if you don't have children. I mean, it will affect you either way, but um yeah um in, in an interview I saw with Haas he he brought up that that scene and how uncomfortable it was 
to film, and he remembers it. But he felt protected, you know, in that scene. It's important for a kid like that, you know. It's a very vulnerable kind of a scene, you know. It's uh, tricky. So now that Scotty's gone, you know, he's the first to go. This scene is one of two scenes where we see uh, this character kind of in her emotions are very high. She's in a panic mode. She's on the verge of a complete breakdown right now. You know, her son has just died and she's looking for a stuffed animal so that she can bury the stuffed animal with her son. And we'll find out later that she was not able to find that stuffed animal until literally the very one of the last scenes of the movie. Because she the stuffed animal comes into play again at the very end. We're going to be seeing the minister again. Not really sure at what point of in time this is, how many weeks have passed since the um, blast. My guess is, I don't know, at least a month after. So like 30 days later, maybe. I, I, I'm guessing. But this minister, at this point in the story, he's totally numb. Because he's been doing one service after another all day long, every day for however many days in a row. I mean, we saw a little earlier that 1,300 people had died in town. Probably another, I don't know, 500,000? 500, uh, 500 to 1,000 since then? I I'm not sure. But we don't even know if he is aware of the words that he's speaking anymore, if he still believes in the words that he's speaking. He's become kind of robotic and numb. He's obviously not the only minister in town, but he's the one the movie um, is giving us. So he's kind of like the representation of, I don't know, faith, I guess, um, for the for the town. He's kind of the, the figurehead of faith in this town. Uh, her hair's falling out now. So yeah, it, his character's kind of interesting, too. He, uh, he comes into play a little later. The movie's... Um, only got like 20 more minutes, but he becomes a, a, a more prominent character. Um, starting now, I think. He, it, we're starting to see uh, um, some progression with his faith, with his humanity. He's not just some, you know, guy. He's, he's, a, he's a person. He's a human. But yeah, I'm not sure if Littman was trying to say anything with that character. I don't recall 
that character in the story at all. He was written for the for the screen. A lot of these characters are um, were written, you know, for the for the screen. Her kids don't really have a lot of space in the story. They're mentioned. She mentions, you know, sickness and dying, but they don't really have much of a um, character development. Um, they're they're more like cornerstones um, in the main, you know, the, the author, the the the, the voice, uh, the mother character um, who's telling, you know, she's writing these first person perspective. Um, diary entries um she's kind of floating through uh the situation that she's dealing with knock thank you and her children are obviously extremely important but they're not developed much it's just like you know of you know that she mentions that tree that's withering up or um you know when her children die one at a time um the older boy here <clears throat> He is mentioned a little bit more than the other ones. To watch. Because she kind of, her hope lies in him and hoping that he, you know, he's the last to survive. As he is the last to survive, her hope kind of lies in him to, you know, carry on a future. But, you know, it's pretty bleak. So I would say that this film is a pretty faithful adaptation of that story, even though there's not a lot of meat on the bones. <clears throat> this movie does a really good job of um, adapting the material and, and elevating it and fleshing it out and um, remaining true to the source. Um, it's a very intimate uh, script. There's just enough characters. It's not too many characters. It's just enough to where we can um, feel familiar with everyone um, before they kind of check out. Sunday, I think. Watching Brad, the man he's become. The man he'll not live to be. Alexander's uh, voiceover here is she's suspecting that her older son um, isn't going to make it. She's, he's not going to live to become a man. But you don't you don't really know that. The movie ends before you know he dies or anybody else dies at, at that point. This looting scene is pretty much the only violent scene in the whole film. This is the only moment of violence in the whole movie. And that's the kid that was stealing the batteries. You know, so this kid is like going from neighborhood to neighborhood, stealing whatever resources or supplies that he can muster. But if this, if this was real, you know, there would be one of those on every corner. Looting and violence is, you know, very commonplace in um, times of crisis and, you know, war or um, chaos. I mean, no gas. I mean, 
I literally, I, I mentioned Sri Lanka earlier. I mean, they it's crazy what's going on over there right now. It's nuts. When there's no gas, people just, you know, no food. People revolt. People become very, very violent. They fight. They kill for what, you know, they need. And this movie is... It's not an aggressive movie. It's very passive and... I, I would say it's more fantastical in that regard. I mean, if you were to look at a movie like The Mist, I'm just going to use that as an example. The way that that movie plays out, you know, it has a an ending that is it, it's an ending to end all endings. Uh, Frank Darabont's The Mist, based on Stephen King's uh, short story. Stark contrast between that movie and this movie. Just just using that as an example, from a masculine perspective to a feminine perspective. I don't want to spoil the ending of The Mist if you haven't seen it. But it ends very differently than this movie ends. This movie, Testament, almost ends like that movie. There's, there's, a, there's a moment a little bit later where she considers it and she has the option to end it all with the kids in the car but this movie takes a decidedly different approach it 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 takes the hopeful to me more humane humane approach the, the ending of the mist has always very very much bothered me it it disagrees with every fiber of my being i would never ever go the route that the mist went i would rather face the future that testament offers which is maybe things will get better maybe you will survive face those monsters so i don't know it's a very interesting and um, stark contrast between a masculine perspective and a feminine perspective but i'm just using two two wildly different films as an example so i, I just wanted to bring that up hope is a very important thing in situations like you know these movies offer how is it up there uh, that's what i thought same as in here you know, i keep losing things and i can't find them they go away and, and they don't come back <sighs> so watching so many of these post-apocalyptic films over a period of years and making a very detailed study on on them overall it's kind of depressing you know you're dealing with the end of everything rather than the beginning of everything or i found that my personal disposition soured a bit watching all these films tv shows uh just all across the board i mean there's a lot of very uh you know fantastical type of movies uh 
that fall into that category. But overall, the genre is um, kind of pessimistic. I mean, even even like something as um, science fictional and fantastical as like the Road Warrior is, or Beyond Thunderdome, or whatever. You know, just w- name your own, whichever you want. Um, Dawn of the Dead, or what, whatever. You're dealing with. A, usually, there's a hero, obviously, or someone you're you're meant a protagonist. This there's always a stark contrast with the villain. If it's not an alien who is totally not human at all, it's it's a guy in a hockey mask and a horde of you know bloodthirsty marauders. It's it's just there's always a huge stark contrast um, in these movies, and so it's it's kind of a you get thrown into an emotional ringer once you you watch tons and tons of these films. Uh, Testament is very uh, human. There's really, other than that one marauder, you know, the villain is is war. Humanity not being able to get along with each other. You know, it's it's just a almost abstract villain, but it's very present. It's invisible. It's it's not it's not a guy in a hockey mask. It's not a guy with a bazooka. It's not an alien invasion. It's it's a invisible, quiet, slow death. This movie, yeah, that, that's her daughter there, that she's wrapping up in sheets. There's a lot of uh, sheets in this movie. I don't know if you've noticed that. This character, she's unrolling sheets through the whole movie. I don't know if you noticed it. There's Mike, the gas station attendant, getting thrown into the back of a truck. There's a moment here that I still don't understand. It, it makes no sense to me. So Hiroshi's left behind the uh, Mike's son. Look at all those canned goods. This is the scene that I, I just don't get. Like, what on earth? Why... How did where did all this canned goods come from? Mike and Hiroshi have been hoarding all this stuff, and it's a treasure, and nobody's like raiding this or nobody's like those guys in the in the truck. They didn't take any canned goods home. I don't get it. Like that's a treasure right there. That's that's one-eyed Willie's treasure. That's the rich stuff. I I don't get it. Like he they put a few canned goods here in the basket, but I mean like. That's food for months, if they, you know, can make it that long. I don't know, they're kids, I don't get it. Like, take it all, I don't don't understand. But this is a really sweet moment. Hiroshi is now an orphan. And he's going to join the family now. I don't know what happened to the other kid, the neighbor boy. They just kind of quietly exit him from the from the movie. He was likely in a similar situation where you know, like his parents died, or I don't know that this family took him in. I don't know. It's not really. I don't recall them mentioning what happened to the other boy. You see, I mean, like she's scraping this peanut butter jar, and there's tons of food at the gas station. I don't get it. 
Like, go get some food. I don't, I don't understand. Um, this moment here is the second time that we see a bit of rage from... Well, this is the, the first time we see rage. Um, the first time we saw panic and uh, her being flustered about the, the, the stuffed animal when her son died. But now she's like taking out her rage on these rats in the pantry. Um, she's able to vent a little bit. I mean, what are you going to do? So Brad now, the son, he's kind of taken over the ham radio uh, duties because the old guy has passed on. But it's still just silence on the other end, you know? I, I just, I don't know, man. Hope. You know, you got to hope. Maybe some someday, somehow, someone will answer on the other end of wherever he's calling out to. You know, the hopeful side for me would be like, oh, you know, there's a safe zone in Alaska. Come out here, you know. Delta six. But, yeah. Whiskey's Delta November calling Henry Abhart for Hamlin, California. Yeah, this, this could have been one of those movies where, like, there's a helicopter pilot in town, you know. Or, a, you know, a Cessna pilot. And he just grabs everybody who's who's able or willing to get on the plane and go wherever the safe zone is. But this is not that movie. I've seen those movies. I know how those end. This is the first time we're seeing um, we're seeing her succumb. She's she's becoming very sick. We saw that, you know, the radiation poisoning was affecting her hair. And she's been really strong up to this point. But, I mean, this isn't the movie where, you know, people get better. They get sick, they die, or, you know, they endure despite their sickness. And she's she's a fighter. You know, we've seen that. And w the story is very much like that. She's fighting as much as she can to stay alive. Um, this scene is uh, very telling you know they're just throwing bodies on the on the pyre rather than burying them now and they're doing it silently without any discourse it's just all understood that this is what what where it all ends right here they're just in the in the fire there's a really really good notable post-apocalyptic animated film called from inside that i wanted to mention about a pregnant woman uh, she's on a train. It's kind of like Snowpiercer. She's on this train that's endlessly going. Um, and it's after nuclear holocaust. And the train is full of pregnant women and children. And there's a lot of this kind of thing in there. They'll stop, they'll stop the train and, you know, throw out all the dead bodies into a fire. And when the, the, the main character, her she miscarried i can't remember exactly what happens like she miscarries or her baby isn't isn't normal you know her fate is kind of in question like you know it, does she end up in the fire or what happens here it's a really interesting film from inside
you like Snowpiercer, you'll like that movie. God damn you! Yeah, see, I mean, this is another moment here where... She's hopeless. She doesn't know what to do. There's nothing. Like, there's there's really no future here. And this is, this is one of the important moments of the movie where the minister... He's there to comfort her, and it's... There's nothing sexual or sensual about this. It's just comfort. It's just humanity being there at the right moment. And, you know, he's not wearing his frock anymore. So has he given up his faith? I don't know. But this kiss is just about connection. That's all this is. This is not attraction. It's just connection. And... You know, maybe it's an indicator that they could be a, you know, a mother-father unit um, at some point, which I like that take. You know, like, if they were to leave this town, he would be the guy to go with. You know what I mean? There's another sheet. So the sheets are very important in this movie, I think. it's 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 an unspoken, like theme i'm not really i don't know it, it said it's saying something white sheets you know she's closing the the piano it's like she's done now this is essentially what she's preparing for her last day like this is the last day for her This could very well be the last day. Look at all that trash in the background. Still collecting trash, you know? Like, it's not throwing trash on the ground. It's still very, um... It's clean, you know? So this is the moment that I was talking about that I would liken to the mist. Where she, you know... We kind of know what, what this is. I mean, this is... Um, a decision that she has made. And, um... I'm ready? It's, yeah, I mean, obviously Hiroshi doesn't know what's going on. Does Brad know what's going on? Yeah, he, he's, she probably told Brad what's going on. But, yeah, I mean, th th the movie could end here. You know, like, this could be the end of the movie, but what kind of ending is that? See, that's where that's where I take issue with The Mist. Like, how, how dare they end that movie that way? Brad. This is not in the story. At all. Brad, I... I can't do it. The story doesn't even go here. It doesn't dare go here. I mean, this is this is grim stuff. This movie's PG, you know. <laughs> so thank God, you know, like she didn't do that. And this is this is the last scene of the movie, um, where they celebrate her birthday. <laughs> <laughs> 
or, you know, they're celebrating life. I don't know. Again, they're like eating crackers and a dollop of peanut butter when there's all those canned goods at the gas station. I don't get it. So this is the, um, the stuffed animal, you know, this is really sweet. It's like, you know, Scotty's joined the party for a second, you know, it's kind of sweet. So this is a, a much, much better way to end this movie on a little bit of sweetness, on a little bit of hope. And she has a speech here that probably this speech right here might have gotten her that nomination. Where she wishes that they'll all remember this later. That they'd never give up to deserve the children. It's a very ethereal quality to end on this this thing it's almost like a a speech from heaven or something you know like this is very much um it's kind of it's almost spiritual so yeah we've witnessed a suburban apocalypse here a very uh domestic apocalypse it's it's not the f most fun subgenre of of apocalyptic films, but certainly meant to rattle you a bit and to show what could be. You know, this isn't interceptors in the desert. This isn't you know searching for dry land. <laughs> this is um seeking the heart and really stirring up your spirit and emotions and you know you'd, you'd hope that someday like world leaders would see movies like this and just calm down and just back off you know I, I to wield that much power in, in nuclear weapons it's it's it should never have been you know so yeah this is this is testament and um it's one of the the, the greatest films in the genre so it's been an honor to speak about this movie thank you for joining me